Welcome to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. It's 1922, and you're on a stakeout in New York City, standing in the shadows on the corner of West 52nd. If you believe the rumors, this spot is home to more than 30 illegal speakeasies. You squint at the suspiciously long line of patrons queuing up outside the bodega. You doubt they're there for candy bars and cigarettes this late on a Wednesday night. You swallow your nerves as you watch another tipsy group of girls disappear into the bodega. Then you smooth down your dress, pat your purse to make sure your flask and funnel are easily accessible, and you join the line. Your mission tonight is a routine one for an undercover prohibition agent. Infiltrate the speakeasy, order a drink, and discreetly pour the liquor into the flask when no one is looking. The alcohol will serve as evidence in court and give the chief the probable cause he needs to raid the establishment. You'll mingle and dance just long enough to count exits and learn employees' names. You'll slip out and return to the bureau only after you've stayed long enough to avoid suspicion but not long enough that you get caught. But then again, who would suspect a woman of such subterfuge, especially given how many other girls are all around you, partying the night away? Lots of women fought to make America dry. They stood at the forefront of the temperance movement, campaigning to get rid of alcohol. They were a big reason why prohibition became a constitutional amendment. They fought for it in speeches and marches and helped police it as law enforcement agents. What was it about the cause that called to so many women? What made them hitch their wagon to this monumental task? In our next few episodes, we're going to dive into 1920s prohibition and look at it through the eyes of the women who fought for and against it, raising their voices to get the law passed and using their wiles and courage to subvert it. Grab your axe, a badge, and a righteous attitude. Let's go traveling. But first, I want to remind you that my novel, Nightbirds, is officially out now wherever good books and audiobooks are sold. Thank you to everyone who's bought and raved about my 1920s-tinted feminist fantasy. I've loved sharing it with you. Now, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My newest boss ladies, T. Klein 23 and Tara. My newest lady president, Cassie. My warrior queens, Alexis, Amanda, Kate, Ika, June, Neve and Sloan, and Samantha. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Katie, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, Samara, and Teresa. And my lady pharaohs, Cheryl, Sophie, Kate, Laura, and the fabulous Courtney's. Patrons play a huge role in keeping this show going. For just a couple of bucks a month, they support an independent creator and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, contests, the Explorers calendar, giveaways, full interviews with guests, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website. Mm-hmm. 
Prohibition became federal law in 1920, the same year women won the right to vote. But it wasn't a particularly new idea in America. Many states had some form of dry law on the books long before 1920, due to the tireless efforts of the temperance movement, which had been around for as long as America had had a drinking problem. Which is to say, it seems, quite a while. It seemed that the amount of alcohol being produced and consumed grew with every passing year. In 1830, it said that every American drank roughly 1.7 bottles of 80-proof liquor a week. That's about three times as much as we drink these days. By 1850, Americans were drinking 36 million gallons of beer a year. By 1890, they were drinking 24 times that amount, around 855 million gallons. These figures account for every person in America. But we know that most women and children weren't drinking, which means the men were boozing overtime. Why were American men drinking so much? Well, most spent their days doing back-breaking labor for 12 hours a day for very little pay, in a period where labor laws were few and far between. Many looked forward to quitting time, understandably, when they would get a drink or three at the local saloon, a male-dominated space where they could relax and forget their troubles. Many were also first-generation immigrants, as massive numbers of German and Irish migrants settled in the U.S. in the latter half of the 19th century. They opened saloons in their neighborhoods, as drinking was an integral part of their cultures. 80% of saloons were owned by first-generation Americans, which is why some temperance reformers encouraged Congress to restrict immigration. They thought it would curb the country's drinking. Or were some of them just trying to keep foreigners at bay? Xenophobia was rampant in the early 1900s, a reaction in part to the way immigration caused the U.S. population to swell by more than 40% from 1890 to 1910. But most temperance reformers decided the saloon, not the immigrants that frequented them, were the target of their righteous wrath. These dens of vice and sin were everywhere. There were an estimated 100,000 of them in the U.S. in 1870. By 1900, there were almost 300,000. Saloons were social spaces associated with male camaraderie, and they offered male patrons a variety of vices to indulge in alcohol, gambling, and consorting with women of the evening, giving them rather unsavory reputations. Instead of going home at dinner time to be with their families, men would drink away their paychecks and come home drunk, much to the chagrin of their wives. Most women hated saloon culture, as they're the ones who paid the price for it. Alcoholism meant an increase in domestic violence, the spread of venereal disease, and even sometimes a husband's untimely death. But the most common and frustrating result of alcoholism was that a man's family had to go hungry because he, as the main breadwinner, drank all his earnings at the bar. This was an especially dire situation, given that American women legally couldn't have their own bank accounts and didn't make nearly as much as men. Your husband was in control of your family's finances, and there was no way to stop him from spending all your money on booze, short of dragging his sorry rear end out of the bar yourself. Oh wait, you couldn't even do that. Many saloons specifically banned women from entering to preserve the rowdy, rough-and-tumble culture of the establishment. And as a result, drinking in public became a very gendered activity. <music> a 
After the American Civil War, most states made it illegal for women to serve alcohol, which meant they couldn't work in or run their own saloons. And in some states, like Colorado, Michigan, and Montana, there were laws banning women from entering such places altogether. The saloon wasn't a place for delicate, upstanding females. They weren't supposed to drink, and certainly not in public, surrounded by men. The prevailing fear was that if a woman spent too much time at the saloon, she might trip and fall her way into a life of prostitution. Stepping into a saloon as a woman was a surefire way to compromise your reputation. As Lily Mwenser, a girl who lived above her father's saloon in Denver, remembered, You weren't a lady if you went in. This notion was so strong in America that when temperance reformers entered saloons to record drinking habits for their research, they were often met with jeers and rather uncomplimentary names. It was yet another example of the kind of antithetical gender roles that 19th century society loved to dote on. Men were strong, women were delicate. Men drank, women didn't. This notion about boozing it up being unwomanly was rife in the lead-up to the 20s. We ladies could technically buy alcohol. You don't have to leave, but you can't stay here. Was a common policy among saloons regarding women looking for a tipple. They didn't mind taking women's money, as long as they didn't take a seat at the bar. They'd often sell ladies' bottles at the back door before shooing them right away. Go home, please, little lady. In states that hadn't already banned women from entering saloons, they were still barred from the front where the bar was. They were allowed to go to the back room to eat lunch with family or friends, especially in rural areas, where the local saloon often doubled as a restaurant and social club. These types of saloons still didn't want ladies entering through the front door, though, so they created ladies' entrances so their presence wouldn't disturb the patrons. How considerate. Most women didn't want into the saloon anyway. A huge number of ladies wanted to ban the sale of alcohol altogether. They saw these dens of vice as the root of many of their problems. So they did the same thing that many angry women have done before them. Stopped waiting around for men to solve the problem and started a club so they could fix it themselves. The temperance movement was full of and fueled by American women. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, or WCTU, was founded in 1874, and it would become the biggest political organization run and made up of women in America's history. It wasn't the first temperance organization in America. Religious reformers had long been advocating for temperance. And what with their position as society's religious and moral leaders, women had always gravitated toward the cause. Before the Civil War, most people fighting for temperance were men looking to curb utter drunkenness. But women didn't just want people to stop getting sloshed. They wanted them to abstain entirely. Moderation and self-control were the guide words of the day. The notion that women had a distaste for drinking was rife in America. As one contemporary said of the American gentleman, he thinks it ungallant to drink anything stronger than water in a lady's company. Some women were so married to temperance that they'd turn a suitor away if he drank. It was a deal-breaker. As a popular saying from the turn of the century had it, Lips that touch liquor will never touch mine. Advocating for temperance was often one of the only acceptable avenues through which women could become involved in politics. In the 19th century, suffrage and temperance were deeply entwined. 
A lot of the women who joined the fight for the vote did it because they wanted to get temperance on the political agenda. And the movement had made some moderate gains before the WCTU came along. Maine passed the first state prohibition law in 1846, for example. And the political party, known as the Prohibition Party, was founded in 1869. But the WCTU changed everything. With a platform based on tackling public health issues such as prostitution, alcoholism, and consumption, or tuberculosis. The WCTU's purpose was to create a sober and pure world through abstinence, temperance, and evangelical Christianity. I mean, good luck with that. If this mission statement makes you think of quiet, church-going housewives, you're in for a rather rude shock. The WCTU was born from some seriously pent-up female rage that erupted into violence during the summer of 1873. In what came to be called the Women's Crusade, masses of fed-up ladies took to the streets to call for temperance in more than 900 communities in 31 states around America. They marched in front of saloons, preaching about the evils of alcohol and praying for the souls of the male patrons inside. Talk about a real buzzkiller. Anna Gordon, who will be president of the WCTU when Prohibition starts, will remember the large-scale protests by saying, As if by magic, armies of women, delicate, cultured, home women, filled the streets of cities and towns of Ohio, going in pathetic procession from the door of the home to that of the saloon, singing, praying, and pleading with the rum sellers, with all of the eloquence of their mother hearts. These women were so desperate to convince men that alcohol was destroying families that they broke societal conventions, left their homes, and began publicly admonishing them. Before long, they realized that their prayers weren't doing all that much of anything, and they decided to see if weapons could prove more effective. In hundreds of communities, women began pelting saloons and the men inside them with rocks and sticks to make their feelings crystal clear. Then they realized that axes might be even better in getting their point across. When a courthouse in Washington, Ohio, finally closed two saloons thanks to the pressure of the local crusaders, contemporaries wrote that, Axes were placed in the hands of the women who'd suffered the most, and swinging through the air, they came down with ringing blows, bursting into the heads of the cast, and flooding the gutters of the street. One temperance reformer made rather a career out of wielding a hatchet. Carrie Amelia Moore Gloyd Nation's first husband died of alcoholism after only a year of marriage, leaving Carrie a widow and a single mother at just the age of 22. She was a passionate woman with fierce religious convictions. And the two things she hated most in this life were corsets, she refused to wear one, and alcohol. She spent a lot of her time in church, running her hotel, housing and feeding the needy, and volunteering as a jail evangelist. Spending time with the men in lockup brought home to her just how big an issue alcoholism was. It was illegal to make or sell intoxicating liquors in her home state of Kansas, and yet most proprietors of saloons served alcohol as they pleased, simply paying the monthly fine of $100 and moving on. The law was letting them down, she decided. Someone needed to go further. She began her own chapter of the WCTU, even speaking with the state attorney general, all to no avail. That's when Carrie decided to put down her pen and pick up her hatchet. (laughs) 
At six feet tall, Carrie Nation cut an imposing figure when she started traveling to saloons across Kansas to dole out her particular brand of vigilante justice. Often wearing a black and white gown that looked as though she'd stolen it straight from a nunnery, she'd march into a saloon and greet the barkeep with a Good morning, destroyer of men's souls. How's that for an entrance? Then she'd start swinging that hatchet, creating utter chaos, singing hymns all the while. I smashed the mirror and all the bottles under it, she wrote. Picked up the cash register, threw it down. I threw over the slot machine, breaking it up, and I got from it a sharp piece of iron, with which I opened the bung of the beer kegs, and opened the faucets of the barrels, and then the beer flew in every direction, and I was completely saturated. A policeman came in and very good-naturedly arrested me. Carrie was arrested more than 32 times, and she was physically assaulted more than once. In San Francisco, she even got into a street fight with a saloon owner's wife, who started hitting Carrie with a horsewhip after she wrecked her husband's establishment. One newspaper helpfully included a cartoon of the incident, possibly because two women brawling in the street was so unheard of in 1901 that they felt readers would need a visual. The media loved Carrie and her newsworthy antics, and she cleverly turned her celebrity into a speaking gig touring the country on the lecture circuit and selling mini-replicas of her famous hatchet. Most women, though, realized that violence wasn't going to get the job done. The second president of the WCTU, Frances Willard, had bigger plans than local saloon wrecking. She was aggressive about temperance, calling it a war of mothers and daughters and sisters and wives. At age 35, Willard helped found the WCTU, and at age 40, she became the president of what was probably the most effective political action group of her era. She grew the WCTU into a national, 250,000-member-strong organization. At its peak, she had an army of 766,000 members reporting to her, more than the women's suffrage movement. Willard was a brilliant leader, speaker, and organizer, and she was incredibly gifted at mobilizing women and positioning temperance as a women's issue. Under the deft eye of Willard and her do-everything policy, the WCTU began mobilizing to advocate for prison reform, temperance education, and reformed labor and child welfare laws. By 1890, more than half of the countries in the U.S. had a WCTU chapter, all of which operated under the national slogan, Agitate, Educate, Legislate. Willard had become the second most well-known woman in the world, just after Queen Victoria. Part of what made the WCTU so successful was that it was one of the first national organizations that both black and white women could join. Although the WCTU's leadership was primarily white, many black women joined. And for the same reason white women did, they wanted to prevent alcoholism from causing their families to slide into poverty. Several black women emerged as leaders, including Lucy Thurman, the WCTU's only black founding member. Early on, she established the WCTU's National Department of Colored Work, where she worked alongside other black temperance activists like Frances Harper. However, despite the progressive inclusion of black women, the WCTU was still divided along the color line and plagued by racism, at a time when racial violence and segregation were rampant. Lucy and Frances had to fight continually for funding and support, 
and they often face difficulty in getting white women to help organize black WCTU chapters. President Willard herself was taken to task by none other than anti-lynching activist Ida B. Wells. After Willard made a series of racist comments about how inebriated African-American men posed a potential threat to the safety of white women. Yikes. To make matters worse, Willard made the comments as part of her efforts to garner more WCTU support in the South. And Wells publicly admonished her for spreading negative stereotypes. In a period when the Ku Klux Klan was experiencing a major rebirth, Ida B. Wells documented and publicized hate crimes and lynchings and pushed the WCTU to pass a series of anti-lynching resolutions. Nonetheless, the WCTU compromised on the race issue more than once to garner the support of Southern white women. And they allowed Southern chapters to segregate based on race, although the National Convention sat black and white delegates equally. And while Frances Harper continued to push for white and black women to work together, she also recognized that many black ladies of the WCTU preferred to do their work without the help of their white colleagues, so they wouldn't have to navigate racism in the workplace. The WCTU had some great early successes. They petitioned state representatives to enact organization-sponsored bills, many of which involved enacting county dry laws or establishing educational mandates that schools should teach children about the evils of drinking. Anna Gordon, Willard's private secretary, firmly believed that educating the youth was the key to temperance, and she wrote popular songs and children's books on the topic, selling thousands of copies to help fundraise. This was some impressive political activism for a group of people who couldn't yet vote. But Willard was convinced that only some form of legal prohibition would make temperance a reality, and no such prohibition would ever be achieved without the votes of women. Willard wasn't alone in her thinking. Many temperance activists recognized the importance of suffrage to their cause. Carrie Nation told the Kansas legislature, You refused me the right to vote, and I had to use a rock. And Susan B. Anthony, that stalwart leader of the women's suffrage movement and a supporter of temperance, believed, The only hope for prohibition was putting the vote into the hands of women. Thus, suffrage was one of the many causes the WCTU advocated for, as they recognized that a woman's right to vote was intrinsic to fighting for temperance. And they argued that a woman should be able to vote for her family in case her husband was too drunk to do so. The WCTU felt so strongly that the vote was the key to prohibition that they were one of the first organizations to employ a professional lobbyist in Washington. And their tactics seemed to be working. The president of the National Retail Liquor Dealers Association so feared Willard and the political power of the WCTU that he announced, Gentlemen, we need fear the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the ballot in the hands of women. Therefore, gentlemen, fight women suffrage. Rude. The WCTU laid the groundwork for prohibition, but it wasn't the organization most responsible for the 18th Amendment. That distinction lies with the Anti-Saloon League, founded in 1893. The ASL used a combination of fundraising, campaigning, intimidation, and backroom deals to push their prohibition agenda. They focused primarily on placing dry congressmen in office and employed a PR department to spread their message nationwide. Their publishing arm cranked out 250 million pages of material a month. They were also supported by the deep pockets of wealthy industrialists like John D. Rockefeller, 
who supported prohibition. It's not so much that they were concerned about workers' health. They believed alcohol slowed down their work. And they thought that if workers were no longer able to spend their money at the bar, they wouldn't keep pushing for higher wages. Yep, that sounds about right. At the dawn of the 20th century, the idea of national prohibition was really starting to gain momentum. This was the progressive era of widespread social activism and political reform, and plenty of people were blaming the saloon for America's many problems. By 1916, some form of dry law was on the books in 23 states, and more than 50% of the U.S. population was under some sort of alcohol prohibition. But federal prohibition still seemed pretty far off, largely because the government relied so heavily on the taxes alcohol brought in. It was only with the ratification of the 16th Amendment, which authorized a federal income tax, that prohibition really became a possibility, until America entered the Great War in 1917. National sentiment turned against German-Americans, which was worrying for the country's biggest breweries. The beer industry was huge in America, producing some 900 million barrels a year, and the highest ranks of the industry were dominated by German-American beer barons like Adolphus Busch. The government began pumping out anti-German propaganda to aid the war effort. Shunning beer became a patriotic act. The WCTU and ASL were thrilled about this. The ASL seized the opportunity to market prohibition as American and called for a temporary wartime ban on alcohol, ostensibly as a way of rationing and conserving national resources. And the government listened, thanks in part to Anna Gordon. Gordon had become the fourth president of the WCTU in 1914, and she now had the ear of President Woodrow Wilson. She was instrumental in helping the ASL persuade the president to take baby steps toward prohibition, such as prohibiting the use of food for the manufacture of alcohol, which cleared the way for the passing of the Wartime Prohibition Act in September 1918. The act was a federal law that barred the manufacture of beer and wine after May 1919 and prohibited the sale of beverages with greater than 2.75% alcohol after July 1919. Ironically, the so-called Wartime Act didn't pass until 10 days after the war ended. But hey, no takebacks. After that, the ASL moved quickly. They drafted the 18th Amendment and helped usher it through both houses of Congress in December of 1917. Now that the amendment had been passed by the Senate and the House, the final step was to have it ratified by at least 36 states. All constitutional amendments must be ratified by a three-fourths majority among states before they can be enacted. Thanks to the ASL's years of installing dry politicians in positions of power, on January 16, 1919, just over a year later, the 18th Amendment was ratified. After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within, the importation thereof into, or the expiration thereof from the United States and all territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. And thus the countdown began, and the most ambitious attempt to regulate morality and behavior in America officially became the law.
You click your way down cobbles, heading for a nondescript door. You hand the doorman a secret password and your weapons, and suddenly you're in one of the hottest clubs in town. Barkeeps pour libations that will make your skin glow or help you speak another language. Girls shimmy on the dance floor in trickster kiss dresses that hiss and smoke and bloom. It's seductive, enchanting, and highly illegal, but not nearly as clandestine or as powerful as the magic that runs through your veins. Welcome to the world of my novel, Nightbirds, a 1920s-tinted YA fantasy about a group of girls who will gift you their magic with just a kiss for a price. The Nightbirds are their city's best-kept secret until a political plot threatens to unmask them. And suddenly, they start to wonder if the rules they've been given are actually a gilded cage. Filled with magic, intrigue, and a whole lot of feminism, you'll find it wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Temperance reformers were elated. Anna Gordon remarked, All of us everywhere, men, women, youths, maidens, boys and girls, may pull together toward the goal of a world made wider for women, happier for humanity, safer for little children, a world commercially more prosperous, a world with better health and bigger wealth, a world in which prohibition, purity, and peace eventually shall triumph over discord, disease, and death. Some black leaders were cautiously optimistic as well, as they saw prohibition as an opportunity to earn greater equality. Others were less pleased, as many black Americans worked in the nightlife, entertainment, and restaurant industries that depended on alcohol sales. Plus, they hadn't forgotten that the ASL forged an alliance with the KKK to gain votes. Many Americans were simply upset because they saw the law as an infringement on their personal freedoms. With one New York Herald correspondent writing, There never has been a greater wrong perpetuated on the American people. And yet, for all the angry Americans who felt blindsided by the 18th Amendment's sudden passage, there wasn't enough organized resistance to fight it. As George Aide lamented, the non-drinkers had been organizing for 50 years, and the drinkers had no organization whatsoever. They had been too busy drinking. Of course, you know what happens when you announce a popular store is going under. People crowd around for that everything-must-go sale. In the year before national prohibition goes into effect, the U.S. goes on a crazed bender, drinking to excess, purchasing home brewing kits, and hoarding bottles in basements to prepare for the dry years ahead. It's perfectly legal for private homes and clubs to keep any alcohol purchased before the law takes effect. J.P. Morgan, for one, purchases a thousand cases of French champagne to wait out the law. Even Warren G. Harding, who will become president in 1921, and who was only a Prohibition supporter to win votes, purchased $1,800 worth of liquor. That's about 26000 today. And will regularly offer drinks to visitors in the presidential living quarters. After all, the 18th Amendment doesn't say anything about the legality of drinking intoxicating liquors. So, as we foxtrot our way into the 1920s, prohibition is now a federal law. But laws don't mean much without enforcement, do they? So, the Volstead Act is passed, mostly to empower the government to enact and enforce the 18th Amendment. It details the specifics of what prohibition will look like on the ground. 
It's written, once again, by the ASL, who are intent on making it as strict as possible. President Woodrow Wilson vetoes it, calling it too extreme. But the ASL-backed Congress overrides him. It defines intoxicating liquor as any beverage containing greater than half of 1% alcohol and outlines penalties for lawbreakers. The maximum penalty for first-time offenders caught manufacturing, selling, or transporting alcohol is six months in prison and a $1,000 fine, with greater punishments for repeat offenders. It also makes the Treasury Department responsible for enforcing the law, as they were already responsible for collecting alcohol taxes, and the Bureau of Prohibition was created as a division of the IRS. The Volstead Act contains three glaring loopholes that people start immediately exploiting. The first is that farmers are allowed to manufacture fruit juices into alcohol to preserve their crops without having to pay taxes. This means that people can legally produce up to 1,000 bottles of hard liquor or wine for home consumption a year. Grape producers jump right on this bandwagon, creating dehydrated concentrates of crushed grapes and compressing them into a solid known as a grape brick. You can purchase it to make grape juice, which is why it's still technically legal. But let's be honest, most people are buying it to make themselves some wine. One company's brick package even includes a hot tip in the form of a warning label that reads, After dissolving the brick in a gallon of water, do not place the liquid in a jug away in the cupboard for 20 days, because then it would turn to wine. Whoops. From 1925 to 1929, Americans will drink 679 million gallons of homemade wine, totally by accident. The second exception involves sacramental wine. The law allows congregations with licenses to distribute 10 gallons of alcohol to each adult per year. Some people pose as priests or rabbis of fake congregations to get their allotted 10 gallons, while others decide that now might be a very good time to find the Lord. Many congregations see their numbers skyrocket in the 20s. The third exception is for alcohol made for medicinal purposes. Even though in 1917, the American Medical Association discouraged the use of alcohol in medicine, stating that it had no real value. And yet, many doctors are still recommending it for everything from the flu to heart disease. Licensed doctors can still prescribe wine, whiskey, and other distilled spirits to patients if they believe in good faith that it's necessary. This alcohol is manufactured for pharmacies by government-approved distilleries, and all you have to do is go to your doctor to get some. Many doctors build successful side gigs writing prescriptions for fake illnesses, which you then take to the pharmacist, pay $3, a little over $40 today and collect your allotted one pint of liquor for every 10 days. Refills aren't allowed, but many pharmacists make bank by conveniently forgetting to cancel prescriptions. Sometimes doctors simply write separate ones. No wonder Walgreens went from having only 20 stores in 1920 to 525 by 1929. These three loopholes aren't the only problem with the Volstead Act. It calls for anyone accused of any violation to undergo a jury trial which drowns the federal court system in a veritable flood of petty cases. The ASL also grossly overestimated the cooperation of state and local law. The Treasury Department is expected to police the borders to prevent smuggling, make raids and arrests, 
license the manufacture, storage, and distribution of legal industrial alcohol, and monitor the dispensation of medicinal and sacramental liquor, all on a tiny first-year budget of $4.75 million. Throughout the 1920s, agents consistently complain about how hamstrung they feel by the lack of funding, with one New York agent saying, It will take a great deal more money than the government will ever consent to make it dry. But Congress refuses to supply the Bureau with more money. They don't want to raise taxes. And they've already lost a ton of money in forfeiting the revenue booze taxes brought in. The Bureau is also seriously understaffed. In its first year, it only has 1,500 agents and 1,500 administrators. Eventually, it will grow, but thanks to the Volstead Act, political appointees, not civil servants, are required to enforce prohibition. The ASL did this so that their dry congressmen could appoint ASL-friendly agents. But in practice, this means that agents are not experienced law enforcement personnel. They're just people with friends in high places. They're issued guns despite not having been trained or passed the civil service exams. And they're hugely underpaid, in a climate where they're being showered constantly with bribes from bootleggers and speakeasy owners. No wonder corruption is so rampant amongst them. Agents can make anywhere from $50 to $500, as club owners pay them to look the other way or to get tips in advance of raids. This problem is so extensive that on nights before raids are scheduled, Bureau headquarters cuts off their outgoing telephone service to prevent tips from being phoned out. Many prohibition agents quickly learn that there is even more money to be had from going dirty and working the system than from simply accepting bribes. Some of them seize liquor in a raid from one club just to sell it to another. Others seize the liquor, then sell it back to the original owners for a wildly marked-up price. A few agents even switch sides entirely. When the San Jose Bar in San Francisco was raided, a police officer's service revolver was found, leading investigators to believe that local cops had been running it. Another agent quit the bureau to open his own speakeasy in Greenwich Village, after having learned the trade firsthand. That's not to say they don't kick some butts and take some names. From 1928 to 29, the Bureau will confiscate 11,416 stills, 15,700 distilleries, and 1.1 million gallons of alcohol. That's in just one year. These are often selling alcohol to speakeasies, the illegal underground bars and clubs that pop up after prohibition is enacted. New York alone has over 30,000 speakeasies and nightclubs serving booze, which gives the Bureau a great idea. Let's open a fake one of our own. The Bridge Whist Club is one such speakeasy, meant to bait bootleggers so the feds can penetrate the network of smugglers who supply New York City. It doesn't catch any criminals, because, let's be honest, they knew the score here. But it did accidentally make quite a bit of money selling cocktails. Whoops! Turns out creating fake speakeasies isn't the best way to enforce prohibition. So most agents simply go undercover at real ones pretending to be patrons and asking for a drink. This often means donning disguises, dressing in white coats and posing as doctors to frequent a speakeasy near Mount Sinai Hospital, or carrying legal books to walk into a club popular with lawyers. Lady agents can slip on a shimmery dress and their best red lipstick and simply look ready to have themselves a good time. 
They sneak the contents of whatever they've been served using a small funnel into a bottle hidden in a vest or a purse, which will be used as evidence in court later. Then they flash their badge and arrest the person who just served them. Raids are flashy, and they're also fairly common. Our flapper friend Lois Long frequently witnesses them in her work as the New Yorker's cabaret reviewer. Not that they seem to ruffle her feathers. Of one particular raid, she told her readers, It wasn't one of those refined, modern things, where gentlemen in evening dress arise suavely from ringside tables and depart arm in arm with head waiters no less correctly clad toward the waiting patrol wagons. It was one of those movie affairs, where burly cops kick down doors and women fall fainting on tables, and strong men crawl under them and waiters shriek and start throwing bottles out of windows. But the thing is, raids rarely result in the closure of speakeasies. Most owners just pay cops and agents off to avoid them in the first place. Others find it cheaper to simply get arrested, pay the fines, and get on back to business. In San Francisco, the Eiffel Tower nightclub is raided on New Year's Eve and reopens just a half hour later. In other words, trying to close speakeasies in the 1920s is like playing a rather frustrating game of whack-a-mole. Of course, men aren't the only ones working at the Bureau of Prohibition. Women get in on the action, too. Hannah Brigham is one such woman. Most of Hannah's work centers on inspecting medicinal liquor permits, but she also occasionally goes on raids, even spearheading one herself to bust a silk stocking flapper flask party at a women's college. Now that sounds like a bash I could get down with. The very first female agent sworn into the Bureau is Georgia Hopley in 1922. Her new position makes national headlines, and she leads public relations for the department. She travels the country, speaking in favor of prohibition. She is especially critical of female bootleggers, telling a Boston Sunday Globe reporter, Women resort to all sorts of tricks, concealing metal containers in their clothing, in false bottoms of trunks and traveling bags, and even in baby buggies. Their detection is far more difficult than that of male lawbreakers. At least Topley's comments and her stellar performance encourage local law enforcement to hire more women. The Massachusetts Prohibition Director, Elmer C. Potter, said, I believe the presence of a woman on the enforcement staff will have a most salutary effect in bringing about strict observance of the law and contributing to more faithful work in enforcement. But one of the most famous female agents working in law enforcement is Daisy Simpson, also known as Lady Hooch Hunter and the woman with a hundred disguises. Daisy spent her youth rather wildly, it seems, doing experimental drugs and hanging around with gangsters. Ironically, during World War I, she joined the Moral Squad of the San Francisco Police Department. And after the war, she joins the Bureau of Prohibition. Her unseemly past makes Daisy a fantastic agent, as she has criminal contacts and a knowledge of gang hideaways. There is no shady gangster that she can't sniff out or illegal speakeasy she can't break down. While most female field agents aren't doing the fun stuff, their job is usually limited to taking field notes or photographs after raids. Daisy's creativity and daring help her to become a successful undercover agent. She often works on special assignments across the country. Her M.O. tends to be that she feigns an illness while standing outside a speakeasy and busts the proprietors when they offer her a restorative sip of liquor. 
Daisy quickly becomes a media darling, as the newspapers just love detailing the undercover exploits of bureau agents. Unfortunately for Daisy, in 1925, a San Francisco Treasury Department official will ban women from field agent work, and so she resigns, unwilling to work as a secretary. A year later, she's picked up in Texas on drug charges, and, unable to make bail, she shoots herself in the stomach with a gun she had smuggled in. She survives the suicide attempt and receives a suspended sentence before disappearing from the public eye. I, for one, hope she moves to a fabulous cabin and makes herself a nightly cocktail. And then there's the woman who worked harder than any other in bringing Prohibition to bear, a woman named Mabel Walker Willebrandt. She didn't think a whole lot of the approach of targeting saloons and speakeasies. When it came to busting lawbreakers, she remarked, There's one way it can be done. Get at the source of supply. And she has the authority to do it. In 1921, at 32 years old, Mabel is appointed by the president to the position of assistant U.S. attorney. And thus she becomes the highest-ranking woman in the federal government. Damn, girl! She isn't thrilled with the job, to be honest. She doesn't even personally support Prohibition, and she resents being so intricately linked with it. But she is a hard worker, and likes to see a thing done properly. Give me the authority and let me have my pick of 300 men, she said, and I'll make this country as dry as it is humanly possible. Which she does, so ferociously that she features on the cover of Time magazine with the rather interesting nickname, Mrs. Firebrand. She thinks the path to success is to stop busting the places that sell liquor and instead to go straight to the people who are making it. She wants to target the bootleggers, rum runners, and tax evaders. I know them. And I know how they could be cut off. I have no patience with this policy of going after the hip pocket and speakeasy cases. That's like trying to dry up the Atlantic Ocean with a blotter. She argues more than 40 cases before the Supreme Court, presides over a staff of 100 people, and is involved in 600,000 federal prosecutions from 1920 to 1933. Girls busy. She successfully argues that income made in the course of illegal activities should be taxed, which enables her to bring tax evasion cases against gangsters such as Al Capone. She is frustrated by a lack of resources and coordination, but she still makes bootleggers tremble. When Collier's Magazine publishes a profile of Willebrandt in 1924, it reads, I know a way to make a wise bootlegger in the United States shiver in his boots. How? Easy. Just slip up behind him and whisper, Miss Wilbrandt is after you. But despite being called the First Lady of the Law by Prohibition supporters, Mabel deeply sympathizes with many of the female bootleggers and speakeasy hostesses that she's arresting. And she often argues that they're only doing it out of financial necessity. As a lady, it isn't easy to make good money in the 1920s. And we'll meet some of these scandalous and fabulous dames in our next episode, when we dive into the women who go up against the law. Women were one of the driving forces behind Prohibition. It couldn't have become law without them. But the thing is, for every woman that supported it, there was another who didn't. Many women drank during Prohibition, sipping cocktails at speakeasies. And many others openly engaged in criminal activity, serving as moonshiners, bootleggers, and speakeasy owners. 
ends as the decade dragged on, there were some women who initially supported prohibition who became key in dismantling it. Join us next time as we hang out with some of the women who defied prohibition. We'll learn how to get into a speakeasy, what 1920s women were sipping on, and find out how prohibition actually encouraged many women to drink, and even played a part in their liberation. Until next time. Thanks for listening. There are lots of ways of supporting the Explorers. Tell a friend about it, leave a review wherever you listen, become a patron, or send me an email at theexplorerspodcast at gmail.com and tell me what you love about the show. I always love hearing from you. Much love to Carly Quinn, my research and writing assistant, without whom this episode wouldn't have been possible. And of course, don't forget to check out Nightbirds. You can buy it or listen to it wherever good books are sold. You'll find show notes for this episode on my website, theexplorerspodcast.com, where you'll find a transcript, lots of images, a list of my sources, and more. On social media, you're most likely to find me on Instagram at theexplorerspodcast and every once in a while on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks as always to Paul Gablonski, aka Mr. Explores, for my theme music and logo, and to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Brittany, Kim, Cassie, Veronica, Cecilia, Jessica, Detra, Andrew, and my brother John. Mm-hmm.